0: We have got the right guests right now with the right questions. We could really spend a good amount of time on wage dynamics and labor dynamics in America with Thomas Purcelli, RBC Capital Markets Chief U.S. Economist, and he joins us on radio and television this morning. Tom Purcelli, I'm going to cut to the chase of the asymmetry of any labor report. And it's one part about, well, people maybe not getting job growth as much or losing jobs faster. There's two dynamics always in a labor report. Is this economy about the inability to form jobs?
1: No, I, I think yes, uh, there is a, that is a challenge. I think we know that. We can see that in the job openings data. I mean, you know, we have um, a, a staggering amount of job openings um, you know, sort of roughly equal to the the number of of unemployed. and and we just can't find those matches. So yeah, I do. I think that there's some element uh, of of truth to that. I, look, I, I know people are I, I, you know my my inbox is already filling up with, uh, hey, you know, uh, what does this mean for the recovery and et cetera. <laughs> it's one it's 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 one report that missed the mark. Um, uh, you know, and it's a report that hasn't done a really good job of telling us what's going to happen with private. NFP, which we'll get on Friday. I mean, yeah, it did a great job last month. Um, You know, the numbers were nearly on top of one another. Uh, But, you know, other than that, (laughs) the misses have been staggering, right? I mean, it's missed by between four and 500,000. So I I wouldn't take much, much uh, away from this report as it relates to this coming Friday. I mean, we're still looking for 700,000 private jobs. That feels like a pretty good estimate. In, In fact, if anything, it's a, there's a really favorable seasonal factor yeah. uh, in in play for this coming month, so uh, I, I think we feel comfortable about this. Okay. I think part of the challenge, though, is you know Fed Governor Waller put put I, I think really put a sort of a, a bullseye on on this report, uh, you know, in his speech the other day. Um, so I think you know maybe expectations are. Uh, going to be uh, mm-hmm. very elevated with, with regard to this report. But I, I think it'll probably yeah. wind up coming out uh, and, and uh, at a minimum meeting expectations.
0: And Tom Purcelli, the single sentence this morning for me was Paul Donovan, always brilliant over at UBS. And Paul Donovan said, wait, are we counting jobs Mm-mm. correctly in the modern economy? Are we counting digital jobs, TikTok jobs, yeah. and all the rest of it? Do you actually believe the data now? Or are we in some new paradigm?
1: Yeah, I, I think that it's a, I think it's a fair uh, uh, thing for all of us to sort of really dig into. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, but I think the problem is this, um, you know, if if we are in the midst of a shifting paradigm, uh, you know, the, the reality is people are going to be very slow to sort of wake up to the reality of the new paradigm, which means that you're left with having to deal with, you know, sort of all of the data that we have been using prior, um, uh, you know, as it relates to Fed policy, you know, I I, I would love for them to sort of drill in and and sort of understand, you know, different labor dynamics beyond just, you know, the payroll report and what some alternative data are telling us. But that's not something that's going to happen on the fly, particularly not right now. So for the Fed, as it relates to the sort of the fate of policy, it's going to be entirely about what happens with these payroll reports. Um, uh, You know, even if, you know, sort of behind the scenes, uh, there are actually, uh, you know, the the labor backdrop is showing more strength. I, I that's not going to equate for for this Fed with regard to w- w- their decision to taper or their decision to hike rates.
2: Tom, help us navigate the Fed speak. Vice Chair Clarida at ten Eastern. What kind of approach are you looking yeah. for?
1: Yeah, I, I look. You know, we 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 like uh, um, Clarida a lot in terms of you know sort of being a guidepost uh, for um, what the conversation that's happening within the Fed. I mean, I think again, I think Waller really gave us a a good sense uh for that the other day um, and, and in fairness uh, you know in uh, <laughs> to be totally fair to all of these fed officials I mean they all speak with such regularity now I think we get a really good sense for what's happening behind the scenes uh, as it relates to these conversations so you know D- clarida has has done I think the dutiful thing um uh in his time as vice chair which is to say you know more or less representing what the chair um uh, is is saying and thinking um so uh, you know does he break new ground here today uh, t- Frankly, I would love for him to break new ground. I would love for him to be more aligned with uh, uh, what Waller was saying uh, earlier in the week, because I think that is I think directionally, I think that is where we're going. I think Powell is probably going to be the one that's late to the party on that. And in fairness, and I've said this to you all well before, I think he probably has to be a little bit late to, to, to the party. I don't I don't think anyone wants him you know, basing what is going to happen on policy uh, on what his forecast is. Uh, I think that they want him to sort of, you know, just hit it down the middle um as as much as he can at every time but again as i think it relates to sort of the changing and the weaving dynamics of the economy um i think that the other officials uh, including clarida think that they're usually better um at giving us a sort of a, a, a sense for what they're thinking about these changing and weaving dynamics so i i'm, I'm looking forward to his speech but again um, I have to say, like, my my new favorite Fed official is Governor Waller. <laughs> Just to move things along.
2: I'm not surprised, Tom. Some yeah. people might say that Chairman Powell's merely reflecting what the vice chair is thinking, but we'll leave that for another day. Let's talk about the sequencing yeah. Yeah. you're looking for. We've had two outlier calls on this program in the last couple of days. Yeah. We've had one who thinks we can get a June rate hike, June of next year, and another from Natixis yeah. who said no rate hike through the whole of this presidential administration. Tom, what are you looking for? The kind of sequencing your base case at the moment
1: yeah so our, our base case is that they they tee up uh tapering uh per- perhaps as early as uh, the november meeting again I- I would love for September to be right. I, I don't think, I think that's uh, way too early. So we, we think that it, it could happen as early as November. Uh, but again, I have to be frank, whether it's November or December, I, 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 that's a that's a distinction without a difference in, in my humble opinion. Um, but again, uh, uh, so it's November, December, they teed up, they start either in sort of December or in January. Uh, and then they they tie it up by the middle of the year, and then shortly thereafter, they're raising rates. So we have one hike built in for next year. But again, Jonathan, I, I think you're asking the, the right question. I mean, let, let's let's all be clear on this. I think it's a really important point. If you think about um, this this new flexible average inflation targeting framework, you can easily make the case that maybe fate has the FAIT has been um, has been achieved already. And and, in, and uh, Loretta mester has has effectively said that idea we agree with her on that. And then think about next year. Think about the Fed's forecast for the unemployment rate next year is 3.8%. Um, I know people think that I'm like this big you know, economic bull out there. Um, okay, but the bull is then aligned with the Fed because that is pretty much my forecast. I mean, I have 3.5% on the unemployment rate by the end of next year. Yet, are you going to tell me that three and a half percent, which is or 3.8 percent, to use the Fed's number, which is below their long run estimate of funds and fate having been achieved equates to no hikes in 22. I mean, that 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 is inconsistent. Um, and so I think. People are looking for catalysts to get the market to move. I'll give you a catalyst that I think could be very interesting. Um, And I don't think it's econ data. I don't think, I think even if payrolls blows it out, I don't think that's what's going to do it. I think the September payroll, I think the September uh, FOMC meeting, I think could be very interesting. As I think everyone appreciates, there's seven Fed officials looking for a hike in 22. It only takes two more officials moving off the zero lower bound to get that median to move. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if something like that happens. In fact, I would say that that's the area that's ripe for continued movement um, within the yeah. within the SEP in general.
2: Sorry? Tom, that's such a good point. Such a good final point. Tom Porcelli of RBC. Tom, great to catch up, sir, Thank as you. always. Tobias Lefkovich joins us now from City, the chief U.S. equity strategist, and Tobias is looking for 4,000 year end on the S&P 500 all time highs that are closed yesterday. Tobias, walk me through the work that you and a team, Robert Buckland over in Europe, is doing with his team over at City, and why you're just a little bit more cautious on U.S. equities together.
3: Sure. So let's start with the, you know, the discussion you guys were having before about the bond market. Bond yields have had enormous impact on how you think about cyclicals versus growth versus defenses versus growth versus value. And this has been what's really changed in the past three months as we see the bond yield go in. Now, again, there's been a lot of discussion around what the impact, distortion, et cetera, of, of the Fed has been. But keep in mind, central banks globally have been keeping suppressed rates since really 2008. And what that suggests is that they don't have confidence in kind of long term, sustainable, durable growth. So as a result... Risk premiums are higher, which is something people don't talk about when they talk about negative yields, for example, Um, and it is important to valuation markets. In an environment today, and I, I think it's like a really critical thing to understand, in 2008, in our last recession, 30% of the S&P 500 was comprised of, in terms of market cap weight, was comprised of deep cyclical industrial materials, energy, and 30% was secular growth, including IT, including media, entertainment, um, including in digital retailing, if you don't think of it that way, and healthcare, which is growing simply because of demographics. Today that number is like fifty five versus fifteen percent in favor of growth. So the US is a heavy growth market. And if you believe bond yields are going to edge higher, then growth stocks are going to take a little bit on the chin. And that's why you'd probably want to be in more value-oriented areas, which is what Rob Bupton, our global chief uh, equity strategist, was suggesting with his note. One last point, Jabaz Mathai, who's our great strategist, looking at that 2% number, really pointed out very significantly that because tax collections really stepped up meaningfully in June, remember we distorted the time frame for collecting it instead of April 15th, it was June 16th, the Treasury was flush with cash going into July, and only issued $94 billion worth of bonds. $80 billion alone was just picked up by the Fed. So you left $14 billion of
2: new issuance for the
3: rest of the world. That's going to have impact on that bond yield. And
2: and it's another one of those distortions that are sitting in markets today. 1 of 15.22 on a nominal 10-year yield. You guys are looking for that move back towards 2%. So, Tobias, for an international story, I understand from Robert Buckland, Japan, UK, deep value, I've got all that. From a US perspective, Tobias, can you just walk me through the sector preference right now for you and the team? So we're a little bit mixed on that we we do like capital goods we do like
3: consumer discretionary but very specifically within retailing consumer services we're not chasing consumer durables and apparel we're not chasing autos we think those are probably not interesting to us and then and then we like financials we like banks we like insurance more neutral and diversified financials today um and those are excuse me (laughs) those are more value cyclical oriented groups so from that perspective um, we are there. We're not totally out of growth. We're not saying run like hell because tech, hardware and equipment, we're still an overweight on. Um, we do have a downgrade watch there, but we're still an overweight because we think it's part of the capital spending cycle.
0: These glide to bias to the Citigroup outcome. Can they be affected with stability or do you see significant volatility where along the path we enjoy VIX30 or even
3: worse? Is that a word worser? Uh, uh, <laughs> um but CFA level two. Um but let's let's kind of go through this process. I'm not actually worried if the VIX is at 30, and I'm not actually worried if the VIX is at 15. Where I get very worried is between 20 and 30, because that tends to be the problem area for the markets historically. Um, you have about If the VIX was at 15 or 35, you both in both instances, you have about an 88% probability the markets will be higher 12 months later. So it's not those edges. It's, the, it's crossing over in that 20, 30 range that you need to be a little bit more worried. And I do think you have some potential for volatility. There are four catalysts that are disconcerting, if you like, for us that possibly could all coalesce around september tapering inflation being a little bit more persistent profit margin pressures because costs go up because of supply chain challenges for example and you can't easily make it up on pricing and then lastly is something nobody's talking about which is taxation we're going to see corporate taxes going up and it's going to impact 2022 estimates uh, for the street and that has been the real driver for the market has been really strong earnings problem is the guidance isn't that good anymore. The revision trends are at historic peaks and is unlikely to be you know continuing to rise at this pace. And that will worry some people, especially when sentiment is so bullish, our panic euphoria has been in euphoria for a while. Um, the complacency out there when we talk to investors you know, on a qualitative basis is very palpable.
4: There's a lot of potential headwinds and yet it doesn't seem to be coming together in some sort of big swoon as a lot of fund managers would like to see so they can go in and buy that dip. And I do wonder whether this just means we've brought forward so many of the returns and that going forward over the next five to 10 years, returns on the headline S&P 500 are going to be pretty muted. What's your expectation there?
3: It's a really good question, Lisa. One of the things we've been showing people is that if you look at the household sector's equity exposure as a percent of their financial assets is around 50% or so right now, that's a 50-year high. And if you go back in time and you look at heavy exposure, you've actually done exactly what you just suggested has brought forward a lot of the return. If you look at that today, it's talking about kind of like a 0% return compounded annually over the next 10 years. Now, that shouldn't shock people when they hear that, because remember, when you hit your highs in 2000, you didn't get back to that level until 2007. So we do have periods, and and I'm, I'm relatively certain about this, that over the next 10 years, we will have a recession. And when that happens, earnings often drop 30%, and so do markets. So to say over the next 10 years you might not get any return in equities on the S&P 500 isn't that crazy, even though it sounds crazy. Um, but it, it means that you probably have to be much more of an active investor and passive vehicles may become less interesting to investors over the next decade.
2: We had a recession over the last decade. It lasted a couple of weeks. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Tobias, <laughs> going to catch up, sir. Tobias Levkovich, city <laughs> chief, U.S. equity strategist.
0: Right now, Ira Jersey with us is Bloomberg Intelligence at the Bond Market. Ira, we really wanted to do a one-hour interview uh, with you. We'll compress it right down. What matters to you in this new low-yield
5: environment? Well, well, realistically, the only thing that matters is the outlook for COVID and the effect that it's going to have on the economy. And I think that that's really what's been driving the market for the last couple of months, the Delta variant, how pervasive it's been in other parts of the world. And then now it's feeding into uh, the U.S. psyche a little bit here, um, fears about lockdowns. And, and that's really what's going on with the uh, with the bond market right now. You know, I'm sympathetic to that Morgan Stanley call that you mentioned about yields being higher by year end. And I do hope that that's going to yeah. be the case. but. This is all about uh, fear right now, and the bond market is benefiting yeah. from flight to quality.
0: That was a Citigroup call. John, why don't you pick it up and frame it around
2: that? that the magnitude of that Citigroup call? Well, Morgan Stanley looking for a move back to 160, Citi looking mm. for a move back to 2%. Ira, I do wonder the degree to which there is some asymmetric risk around where real yields are right now. Negative 121 mm. this morning, Ira. Do you speak to anyone that thinks they can go much lower than this?
5: Yeah. So, so everyone that I talk to on the institutional side doesn't like it. But I think that there's two big factors that continue to uh, push real yields lower and lower. One of those is you look at flows into TIPS ETFs and mutual funds, and they're just insatiable. There's a lot of people who want inflation protection. They're worried that inflation is going to be higher. Maybe there's going to be more supply chain disruptions. And you're going to see CPI prints that are a bit higher than what we've had in, in the recent past, or at least that they'll persist longer, uh, e- even if they they don't go much higher from here, um, and the second is the Federal Reserve still is buying a lot of the tips market. Remember, yep. they're, they're they they only own seven percent of the tips market in February of 2020. Now they own almost 30 percent. So wow. you know they they they've significantly increased their ownership. So liquidity in that market wasn't like it was in nominal Treasuries in the first place. And then you add to that these flows into from retail investors into ETFs and and uh, and mutual funds, and suddenly you have a recipe. Be for lower and lower real yields. So, you know, I, I think that there is a big risk to real yields where if real yields do back up 50, 70 basis points, there's going to be a lot of negatives on people's statements and maybe they'll rethink those investments, which could push real yields even higher. But we're not there yet because, like I mentioned, fear is still gripping these markets. I'm
2: worried about the opposite. I think this is so important, together with the fact that the Federal Reserve owns almost a third of this market now, are people buying tips with conviction or as insurance? Because if you don't own insurance for inflation in the year ahead, haven't you got a degree of career risk? Isn't that in the mix well, right he, now for PMs?
5: I, I, th- I think here's part of part of the issue, is that you, there's other ways to take inflation risk. The, the problem I have with owning tips outright, and most of these uh, mutual funds, take a lot of interest rate exposure and a lot of interest rate risk where let's say that inflation does go up to five or six percent and stays there persistently you're not likely to see real yields stay where they are those are likely to rise up from negative 120 basis points to maybe negative 50 or, or zero and if that happens you wind up actually losing three or four percent on a mark to market basis so it really depends on who you are like tips are a great investment and a great inflation hedge If you hold the individual bonds and you hold them to maturity, but owning mutual funds and other um, other wrappers like that mean that you're you're always taking interest rate risk that maybe you don't really want to be taking. Um, So so I really worry that there's a lot of people buying these products that don't really understand the underlying uh, risks that that are inherent in that market.
4: Ira, just to put a bow on this idea of 30% ownership of the TIPS market by the Federal Reserve, has the TIPS market ever been more divorced from giving a true indication of inflation expectation than it is right now?
5: Uh, well that's a good question because we, you know at 2.3 percent which is where 10-year tips are pricing inflation at the moment it, it's not obvious that that that's going to be wrong so I, I think that the inflation component I may be actually um, su- suggesting that that the market is going to be right and that we're going to have two-ish plus or minus 25 basis points of inflation um, the, the the question is is real yields being so low keeping nominal yields lower than they should be you know you look at a lot of our fair value models based on where fundamentals are and we are 25 to 45 basis points too low on uh, on actual yield. So closer to 150 seems to be a more fair value, but I think it's these flight to quality and some of these technical aspects of the of the both the tips market and the nominal market that's keeping yields as low as they are. Now and, and those can take a long time to go away. So this isn't something that necessarily is going to snap back in the next 2 or 3 weeks, <clears throat> but over the course of 3 or 4 months, but Potentially, we can get back into that range, which is much closer to our estimation of fair value for the market.
2: Ira, great to have you on. Timely conversation. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you, sir.
0: Right now, David Weston knows Lyric is spelled with a Q. That's an electronic vehicle that General Motors will give us here in a month or so. And David Weston, the 300-mile range that gets you halfway
6: to Detroit. <laughs> I've driven that drive many times. Thanks so much, Tom. And leave it to you to really know how Lyric is spelled. Good for you. You know who's going to be happy about that? Mary Barr. She is the chair and, and CEO of General Motors, and she joins us now live from her headquarters in Detroit. Mary, thank you so much for being back with us. I know you're going to say, and you're going to be right, that the second quarter is just one piece of a longer arc for GM. But to take that one piece, you did very well on revenues, better than people expected. You set a new record on EBITDA. You fell short of what people expected on earnings per share. How How much of that was because of the $1 billion in costs on a recall?
7: Well, certainly that's going to have an impact, but again, we're always going to do the right thing for our customers. We prioritize uh, their safety, and so it was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, we've learned from it. We know it's a very unique uh, situation when two manufacturing defects that are quite rare happen in, in the same cell, that that causes the potential for a fire. So we're going to address it and we'll we'll move forward. I think it's also important to note when we look at our Ultium platform, that is a, a whole new battery system, and that's what underpins the Hummer, EV that will be out uh, yet this year, the break break drop products, and then, of course, uh, next year with the Lyric. Well, that's
6: what I was going to ask about. How do you make sure that this doesn't happen? You're making a substantial, substantial investment in electric vehicles. You've actually advanced the time that you're going to invest some of that money, $35 billion, as I recall. How do you make sure you don't have this problem again?
7: Well, of course, uh, anytime we have an issue, we have an uh, outstanding engineering team and they look to make sure we never repeat uh, that issue. But I also think it's important to note that uh, as we go forward, uh, we've announced four battery cell plants. Those will be joint ventures. Uh, GM brings our manufacturing expertise and our quality processes. And I think that should give people great assurance as well.
6: There's another uh, headwind that you've been facing and that's semiconductors, as all the auto industry has been facing. Give us an update on that. How many fewer, particularly trucks are you going to make uh, in the third quarter than you otherwise would because of the shortage of semiconductors?
7: well I would say you know we, we uh, increased our guidance um, uh, for the full year so I think that shows our confidence that we're going to continue to perform on top of an exceptionally strong h1 uh, but we're gonna we'll be very fluid right now we work uh, and it's on a you know daily for the team that's working on it but weekly from a leadership team we're looking at making sure we understand the semiconductor situation and we're allocating uh, chips to our highest demand to take care of our customers and also the vehicles that are in Plants that are capacity constrained, and that is especially our full-size trucks and SUVs. So you'll see us continue to do that. You know there is a lot of um, you know growing uncertainty because of the Delta variant. We've seen an impact in Malaysia, uh, and we've mapped it out by in detail. And so you know we're working to share our safety protocols because we have uh, the experience to say when people follow those protocols, they can be in uh, their their manufacturing operations or whether it's design or R and D, they can do that safely. So we're going to continue to share that work with our tier ones uh, and all the way down to, um, you know, our tier fours to make sure they have that uh, benefit. And then we'll just keep maximizing production.
6: So Mary, I'm glad you brought up the Delta variant because we're all trying to come to terms with it a very uncertain development here. Give us a sense of what you think it might mean for General Motors. You just mentioned semiconductors more, bro- more broadly in your manufacturing.
7: Well, we did uh, announce to our teams uh, yesterday, and it started today, that we're reinstituting the mandatory mask policy at all of our sites uh, because we know when people wear masks and follow the, the appropriate social distancing and the and the sanitizing um, recommendations, people can be safe at work. And so, I think we're in a very different position than we were over a year ago when really we weren't sure. We know the protocols work, so we're going to be applying those. And uh, again, as as we all uh, leverage all the learnings we've had over the last 15 months, I think that's going to put us in a better position for H2. But we are monitoring carefully, and you know the team will continue to adjust.
6: Uh, so, Mary, we're talking about some headwinds that you've been facing. What about some possible tailwinds, particularly with respect to pricing? Because there's something of a shortage of vehicles for all sorts of reasons. Prices seem to be pro- pretty robust. How much is that lifting your profitability?
7: Well, clearly the strong pricing environment and the, and the strong demand um, is something that is is uh, really supporting our strong earnings. But I would also say when you look at General Motors specifically, we have an incredibly strong product portfolio that we're offering. The customers are responding. And we're also working to be more efficient with uh, with inventory. We've given our dealers tools that they can see what's coming. There's many times a, a, a truck uh, arrives at a, a dealer and most of the vehicles on the on the truck are already sold. We're also helping them order the most popular or the, the best configured vehicles for their era using data analytics. That's allowing us to move vehicles faster. So, you know, I think because of our portfolio, um, even though there'll come a point when uh, we have more availability that they'll see some moderation in price, I still think we have a, a strong pricing opportunity. And of course, we're going to be more efficient with all the lessons we've learned in this uh, last six months.
6: And finally, Mara, I mentioned the substantial investment General Motors is making in electric vehicles. What visibility do you have into data? The- Demand for those vehicles. I know you're going to start taking some orders for the Lyric in September, but do you know that there will be the demand there? I know you're going to have the supply.
7: Well, we you know we do a lot of customer research, and, and customers are telling us if it's a beautifully styled vehicle with about three hundred miles of range, uh, it's affordable, and then there's a robust charging infrastructure. They're very interested in owning an electric vehicle. So that's why we're working on the ecosystem to make sure as customers buy an electric vehicle, it's a it's a you know uh, outstanding customer experience. And that's I think what we're going to need to do to drive EV adoption. But I'm confident that we will. And then when I look at our products. Uh, that are, are coming out. The vehicles, we haven't shared many of them. But, you know, when you look at the the strong demand for the Hummer EV and the strong interest in the Lyric that will uh, begin to take orders next month, I, I feel very confident that uh, we're going to see strong EV adoption.
6: Okay, Mary, thank you so much for your time on a very busy day for you. That's Mary Barra. She's the chairman and president and CEO of General Motors. Tom?
0: Uh, David Weston, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Right now, joining us, David Rubenstein, Host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations, of course, with Carlisle as chairman and co-founder. And this year, uh, this uh, week, I should say, uh, Mr. Rubenstein uh, speaks to the gentleman from Duke, uh, uh, Mr. Kopinski of uh, McDonald's. Uh, David, I look at the challenge here, and for me, McDonald's is fascinating because it's 200,000 employees, but it's well in excess of 1.9 million when you add in the franchises as well. What is his approach to 2 million bodies?
8: Well, it's a lot of people to manage, but their system has been largely a franchise system. They own about 10 percent in the United States of the McDonald's. They want to be an owner so they actually know what it's like to own and and they can give directions based on having been an owner. But most of the employees at McDonald's actually are are franchisees, uh, employees.
0: Well, the franchise uh, and, and, and employees but he has a challenge in this pandemic did you speak to him in your peer-to-peer conversation about what do you actually do is he going to give out a thousand cheeseburgers for everybody who gets vaccinated
8: well they are doing things like that they are um uh, not from vaccination they're trying to get their biggest focus right now has been trying to get employees uh to staff the operations because uh, it's harder to get employees. Some employees uh, left after during the, the COVID period of time. So now they're, they're incenting people to come back. They're giving $50 for an interview. And if you're at the company for more than 90 days, I think they give you an iPhone.
4: David, this raises issues for existing employee employees as well because they probably want an iPhone and an extra $50 as well. And across the board, you're seeing wages increase just today. CVS raised its minimum wage to $15 an hour. This, of course, comes in the heels of Amazon and Walmart. How much pressure is there to pay more? I mean, in other words, do we have a sense of where the cap is of how much higher these, uh, right. these salaries can go?
8: Well, you remember, the legislation that was considered in Congress that did not pass would raise the minimum wage over five years to $15. McDonald's uh, now beginning wage, minimum wage that they start people at is $11. The legal minimum wage is $7.50. So McDonald's is well above the legal minimum, but they're not quite yet at 15. So I suspect there the pressure is such that they probably will have to increase uh, a bit because it's hard to get employees. Young people have many different things they can do now, and it's tough to get people to work at these jobs sometimes at the beginning at the entry level.
4: David, is this the key issue, just getting the salaries, getting the pay high enough to get people into the workforce? Or is there something else that's creating this friction that's kept the, uh, a great deal of people still on the sidelines?
8: Well, some people are afraid of, uh, of working in environments where they might not feel everybody that they're working with is vaccinated. So you don't know if everybody coming to McDonald's is vaccinated for sure. Um, so there are lots of issues, but I do think it's, largely the case that people have been off of the workforce in some cases for, you know, 18 months and now getting them to come back is not easy. The salary is higher than the minimum wage, but not as high as uh, some people. You just suggested that CBS is increasing to $15. So I suspect they probably will have to do more than they've already done. Remember, they don't control all the wages because only 10% of the employees are there. 90% of the franchisees. or so the franchisees do take direction from the headquarters. And uh, the principal issue that they're facing as well is 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 how do you get people back into the the, into McDonald's Uh, they found that they needed to have a lot more drive-by or drive-in a lot more digital it used to be that you went to McDonald's you ate there uh, called dine-in but now a large part most of their sales sales are really coming by drive-in or drive-by and then uh, digital where you're ordering or delivery Um, So it's much it's much different than it was just a few years ago.
0: David, whether it's your conversation with Jeff Bezos or here with a gentleman from McDonald's, it's about scale. David Rubenstein on scale. Is it overrated, overplayed?
8: No. Scale is very important, obviously, in building a global business. Why McDonald's has been so successful is it is bigger than everybody else and they can afford to make changes and then they can move it out across the country and around the world. The reason that McDonald's has done so well is that they, they, everything is the same around the world. So when you go to McDonald's in Paris, where the biggest McDonald's in the world is, in the Champs-Élysées, or you go anywhere in the world, you're going to get largely the same tasting product, and people like that consistency. That's why they've done so well.
2: I did not know that the big, biggest McDonald's in the world was in Paris. David, thank you for that. It,
8: okay, it's in the Champs-Élysées.
2: There we go. I'll make a visit. David Rubenstein, host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations and Carlisle Group co-chairman and co-founder.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.